Thank you for downloading and listening to the Briam Bible Church Sunday Morning Podcast. Briam Bible Church is located in Shoreline, Washington, morning worship at 11, and many more events throughout the week. For more information, please visit our website at www.bereanshoreline.org. Not be moving around the stage today. Actually, the kids heard me, so the rest of you, you're old. Uh, Actually, I'm the one who's getting old, and it's showing up in various ways as we continue to replace body parts. One of which was my knee, which was replaced 18 days ago. So, um, <clears throat> this will be the longest period that I have stood unassisted since then. If at any point I say amen and drop to the ground, you're just free to go. <clears throat> <coughs> Length of the sermon will be limited by my ability to stand here. Uh, it's the first time I've been up here since the stage has been rebuilt. I don't, do I feel closer? I, I can't really tell. It's, it's still a great view to see all of you back there way back in the back where all of you sit. <clears throat> in fact, I thought that was sort of the point of the redesign, why the stage got redesigned and not the rest of the sanctuary, I'm not sure. When you grow up as a pastor's kid, I think my dad had a full shelf of books that were just pastor jokes. Uh, and of course, we kids would read through them, and some were funny and some were not so funny. Pastors thought they were all funny. Uh, and you've heard pastors tell jokes and sometimes... They're, they're not funny. This one in particular, <clears throat> a particular pastor was frustrated that his congregation would always sit in the back pews. So at some point, he approached the board and he said, I would like to redesign the sanctuary. So the board debated this and they came back to him and said, fine, you may redesign the sanctuary, but we will redesign the platform. The pastor thought, what can they do? Fine, let's go for it. So the church is redesigned. The first Sunday that they're in the new building, the doors open and as people walk in, there's only a single pew on each side in the back. And so the people fill, fall in, they fill in that pew, but the moment that pew is full, it slides all the way up to the front and stops right here. <clears throat> and another pew pops up and back, and each time it gets filled, it slides all the way to the front and so on and so forth until the, until the whole congregation is sitting in the front half of the building. So the pastor has everybody right where he wants him. He's preaching away. He's, he's having the time of his life. He's excited. He's thrilled. When the clock strikes 12, the platform opens up and he drops through. <clears throat> I don't know how I remember that from my dad's uh, books. But, uh, I know the architect of the design here. I'm confident he would not do that. Unfortunately, I know the contractor... Where are you, Mark? There you are. Yeah. <clears throat> he would do that. So let's try not to get to noon. See what happens. <clears throat> let's pray. Lord, thank you for the chance to be here today. Lord, I want nothing more than your word to go forth from this podium this morning. Lord, I pray that would be the case, that you would help me to share with conviction and as though they are your words, because they are your words uh, that we're going to be talking about. Uh, And Lord, I pray that that's uh, what these folks would hear this morning, is truly the word of God. Take it into their hearts and go from this place and live accordingly. Lord, help me, your servant, to deliver your words the way that you want them delivered. I pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. The small group of men that I meet and pray with on a weekly basis 
We're currently reading our way through the book of Proverbs. Anytime I study to preach or teach, it seems to me there's nothing more poignant than what it is that God's dealing with in my heart and life at, the, at that time. And so, this morning I'm going to talk to you from Proverbs, and I'm struck every time I come back to the book of Proverbs by its breadth. Proverbs is at once insightful, specific, sometimes witty, but fundamental. At its core, it reflects so much of our nature, of what's true of the human condition. And of course, it's true, and it's wise, and it's good counsel. Uh, just to warm you up a little bit, uh, I, I brought a few Proverbs with me. Actually, here's what I did. I put down some real Proverbs along with some fake Proverbs. We'll see if you can tell the difference between which ones are the real ones and which ones are the fake ones, and we'll just see how good your, your sense of Proverbs is. <clears throat> so we, I see a white screen, so that must mean we're good to go. So here, let's, let's try this. <clears throat> okay, so I'm going to put the proverb up. You, uh, you know, if you want to stand and say, yeah, that's a proverb, or just sit there quietly and answer rhetorically. Uh, so, but you're supposed to read this. If a man pays back evil for good, evil will never leave his house. Proverb or not a proverb? Answer, it's a proverb. 17.13. There you go. Isn't that fun? See how that works? <laughs> Let's try some more, shall we? <clears throat> I'm trying. Blows and wounds cleanse away evil, and beatings purge the inmost being. Turns out this was my father's favorite proverb. <clears throat> 2030. He who desires everything he sees ends up with nothing. What do you think? It's a, it's a bumper sticker. It's, it might even be accurate, but it's not a proverb. Oops. Now, now, we're, now we're working. Yeah, right. It's better to give than receive. Oh, that has to be a proverb, right? It's not. It is a quote of Jesus Christ. Interestingly, you can't find it in Christ's teachings either. It's Paul quoting Christ. So it's true. It's good. Ain't a proverb. Wow. All right, Cliff, we might have to, we might have to revise how we're doing this. Since a son who drives out his mother and robs his own father should be taken out and shot. It's, again, wise counsel, not a proverb. Do not move an ancient boundary stone set up by your forefathers. You really couldn't make that one up, could you? That sort of has to be... A proverb, 22, 28. But interesting that Proverbs covers that. Do not join those who drink too much wine or gorge themselves on meat. Again, sounds very wise. Uh, turns out it is. Proverbs 23, 20. A pen in the hand of a fool and a sword in the hand of a sluggard both are a disgrace. If you know the themes of Proverbs, you'll know that's not a proverb. But it sure sounds like one, doesn't it? <clears throat> Who would put a sword in the hand of a sluggard, anyway? Always carry a litter bag with you in your car. 
takes but a little space, and if it gets too full, you can always throw it out the window. <clears throat> also, very sound advice, not a proverb. I think that is a Steve Martinism, if I recall correctly. The wise man builds his house on a rock, only a fool builds his house upon the sand. Very biblical, not a proverb. Parable, but not a proverb. Both start with P. Interesting distinction. Eat honey, my son, for it is good. Honey from the comb is sweet to your taste. Again, why would I come up with that if it wasn't a proverb? I don't know. But why Solomon thought it was important, I don't know. If you find honey, eat just enough, too much of it, and you will vomit. It's not good to eat too much honey, nor is it good to seek one's own honor. Uh, it, that's a problem. He who's full loathes honey, but to the hungry, even what is bitter tastes sweet. Uh, I think Solomon must have been a beekeeper or something because he's uh, somewhat obsessed with honey uh, throughout this thing. We're going to get honey out of the way right, right off the bat here this morning, so get that part of Proverbs taken care of. An honest answer is like a kiss on the lips. By golly, that's a proverb. A good wife is better than a kiss on the lips. I'm going to say that's true, but not a proverb. A moment on the lips means forever on the hips. I think you recognize that as wise counsel, but not a proverb. A word aptly spoken is like apples of gold and settings of silver, and only scripture could be so eloquent. And so that is, in fact, someday going to be a proverb, 25 months. <clears throat> Getting close to the end here and progressing poorly. Give careful attention to your herds, and you will have plenty of goat's milk to feed you and your family and to nourish your servant girls. This is a proverb we live by, the camper house, and our servant girls have always had plenty of goat's milk. Isn't that true, honey? For as turning in the milk produces butter and twisting the nose produces blood, so the stirring up of anger produces strife. Sometimes Solomon just has a way with words. This puts it in a way that, like I say, witty but poignant. And last but not least, as the jackalope hides in the rocky crags, so fool runs from discipline. It's a d dead giveaway here. Everyone knows the fool doesn't run from discipline. <clears throat> oh, wait, no such thing as a jackalope. All right, that's not a proverb either. So, Cliff, you can, uh, <clears throat> you can kill that. Thank you. All right, I don't know how you did there, but... <clears throat> I give you that as an example of sort of just to whet your appetite on what types of things are in Proverbs. Every time I pick it up, I think, uh, what great stuff. And it's almost like, you know, there's certain parts of the Bible where I can read multiple chapters a day. You get through like six verses of Proverbs and you feel like your head is just wants to remember these and take them with you. Uh, and, and it's filled with themes that are recurring that I want to keep coming back to, that I want to keep reminding myself of. I think you would recognize some of these things. 
Some of the recurring themes from the book are, you know, sluggards. Many, many verses about sluggards is the only place I know that this, this term exists in Scripture, but Proverbs talks time and, time, time and time again about how the sluggard will fail, but diligence will bring reward. Solomon advises over and over again, seek and listen to good advice from wise people. There are so many verses about the tongue. He says, be careful what you say and when you say it. You know, a blessing given at 6 a.m. is no blessing at all, sort of thing. And of course, uh, he repeats over and over again that a good woman is hard to find. Odd, coming from a man who had a thousand wives. Uh, But there it is. We could spend a week on each of those. We won't. I picked out two themes from the beginning of the book of Proverbs that I, that again, as I open the book, I'm just taken with how focused Solomon is and what a point he makes of, of these two themes in particular. So turn to the book of Proverbs. We're going to talk about just two points out of Proverbs today, and they both start with F to make it easy for you. The first is fear God, and the second is flee immorality. There you go, two Fs. Fear God and flee immorality. Turn to Proverbs chapter 1. We're going to do a little page flipping to get started here. I prefer to have you, you know, take out your device and your scriptures yourself rather than put it on the screen. I think it's healthy to be working your way through the Word of God and to be looking at it in context. And also to continue to remind you that this is God's Word. Every time I get up and speak, I am humbled. And I don't think I need to remind you I'm not up here because I'm perfect or because I've arrived. And you know the same is true uh, or not true, if, if, as you, if you will. Uh, with Jim or Gary or Pastor Kevin, none of us stands here from a position of, hey, I've got this handled, let me tell you how it works. Uh, but rather, these are the things that God is, wor- is working on in my heart and uh, hopefully translates to your life as well. Proverbs 1, verse 7. Starting with verse 1, he talks about what the purpose of all this is. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, for attaining wisdom and discipline, for understanding words of insight, for acquiring a discipline and prudent life, doing what is right and just and fair. Look at verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. Turn over to chapter 2. You'll see a similar theme. Verse 4, talking about wisdom. And if you look for it, wisdom, as as you would for silver, and search for it as for hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Turn over to chapter 3, verse 7. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. All the way to chapter 8, verse 13. To fear the Lord is to hate evil. And then finally, across the page, at least in my Bible, chapter 9, verse 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Fear is an interesting word for God to use about himself. And, of course, the question is, what does it mean to fear God? What's, what's loaded into, what's packed into that word to fear God? Well, Initially, I think it includes the actual concept of fear, to be afraid. It's recognizing that God is the most irresistible force in the universe, and he's not to be trifled with. 
or disrespected. He holds absolute sway over our being. Uh, and I'm old enough that I grew up listening to Bill Cosby records. Some of you may not know what a record is, but <clears throat> I think Bill Cosby made famous a quote from his father, where his father, at times, when frustrated with young Bill, would say, Son, I brought you into this world. I can take you out. I think my father didn't see the humor in that. He thought that was true. Um, and there's some of that included in this notion of fear of the Lord, that he brought us into this world, and if he wants to, he could take us out. But I think it means more than that, more than just being afraid. It includes a notion of reverence. Uh, and packed into reverence is both awe and respect. And so I'm glad we sang a stand in awe of you uh, this morning. Here's what I think of when I think of fear, uh, both an ignorant fear and then a, a more understanding fear. When I was young and grew up in Seattle and really just, you know, two blocks away on 187th Street, we don't get many thunderstorms, as you know, here in Seattle. Uh, and when they come, they're always a bit of a surprise. But I can remember my first thunderstorm, and I don't know, I was four or five years old, and we were living in the house two blocks away. My dad was a uh, youth pastor, a, a CE director here. And I think that was the first time I'd ever heard thunder. And my reaction was immediate. I was between my parents in their bed. And if I recall correctly, a couple of my siblings were there with me. Uh, I had no idea what was going on. It's the first time I'd ever encountered it. And my immediate reaction was abject fear. Fast forward 25 years later, and I'm on a houseboat on Lake Powell in August. So Lake Powell is this beautiful lake that sits essentially in the Grand Canyon, but north of the Glen Canyon Dam. Uh, and so it spans the border between Arizona and Utah, and it's just absolutely spectacular. And it's huge, and so you get in a houseboat, and you sort of tool all around the lake. But August is monsoon season. And if you've ever been in the desert in monsoon season, you get some pretty good storms in the afternoon. And so we were moored into a beach and anchored, and for two hours we could see the afternoon storm coming, and we were watching lightning like I've never seen in my life. Not like we get here, but one that crackles across the entire sky and lands who knows where. And as the sky darkened and the lightning grew closer and more exciting, it was, it was a spectacular fireworks show that only God could create. And it was awesome. And we just sat there and watched it come. Now when it hit... It reminded me why I feared thunder as a child because it was an incredible storm where we were out in the downpour, you know, putting out more anchors and battening down every hatch we could so that we didn't lose the boat into the middle of the lake. And even that, and after that, there's water coming out of every crevice in the de desert. If you've ever been to the desert after a downpour, it's, that too is spectacular. Waterfalls where the day before it was, uh, you know, sand and dirt. <clears throat> but stuff all over the lake, not just from our camp, but from everybody else's that the storm left behind. But, but what a difference to sit and watch God's creation at work and to understand it and to be in awe of it and to love it as opposed to just being in fear of it. And I think that notion is packed into this idea of fearing the Lord. As we grow to know God, our abject fear turns into an understanding and appreciation, especially when we understand that we, he takes that great power, and this should be a great encouragement to us, a God who created the universe and all that's in it, who could sweep me aside with a thought or the wave of his hand, uses his great power for my benefit. 
and for my love and to reach out with his mighty right arm and to save me and to hold me fast, to give me strength to live day to day and to one day guarantee that he'll bring me into his kingdom. Uh, I think all that is packed into this word of fearing God. It's strange that he uses the word fear because so much of the description of God and his power is directed at how God works mightily for us. But he warns us that we should not take these things for granted. Turn to the New Testament for a moment here. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And this idea of fearing God pops up again. Second Corinthians 5, and this is one of my favorite chapters in all of Scripture, and I know it's one you recognize as well. And it's in the context of this ministry of reconciliation that God has given to us. <clears throat> but in the midst of this is a verse that I really don't like, <laughs> and that we don't read much, and that you don't hear many sermons on. And sorry, you just happen to be here on the day when someone decided to pick this one. So here it is. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. Uh, so we make it our goal to please him, whether we're at home in the body or away, for it, away from it. Verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each, of us, each one of us may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Now look what Paul says next. Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. Now, in this context, he has to be talking about what he just said, appearing before the judgment seat of Christ, doesn't he? Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade men. Wrapped up in this idea of fearing God is this idea of accountability. That one day you and I will have to stand before him and give an account for what it is that we did or didn't do uh, on behalf of his kingdom. Turn over to Hebrews. Chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, and while he doesn't use the word fear, there's a notion here that I think is included in it as well. <clears throat> chapter 12, verse 28. The writer says this, Therefore, since we're re we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. And so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Now I read these verses and I have to ask myself. We're great at emphasizing God's grace. We're great at reminding you that we live in a dispensation, we live in an age of grace, and that because of our relationship with Jesus Christ, our sins are forgiven. But I wonder if we, the postmodern Christian church, have fo so, fo so thoroughly focused on the love of Jesus that sometimes we forget what it means to fear God. When you come into worship, do you come to worship with reverence and awe? I'm not even sure I know what that means. Uh, I... I I don't think it means we all come in a suit and tie and we sing only hymns, uh, although there might be some of you who would prefer it that way. Uh, I, I'm not sure it means that. I, I, don't, I don't think it necessarily pertains to how we dress, but I'll tell you, I struggle a little bit as one who in my daily life, if I'm going to show up in court, I have to show respect for the court by wearing a suit and a tie. If 
but if all I'm doing is going to worship Almighty God, creator of the universe, well, then shorts is fine. I mean, it's more, it's more important that I'm comfortable and we have fun, right? Isn't that what church should be like? I think these are fair questions. I think they're the type of things we should ask ourselves. I think at the very least, we need to examine our heart when we come here and ask, what is my heart's attitude when I come to worship God? Is it to be comfortable and to have fun? Is it to see what I can get from the message today? Or, you know, is it a function where the pastor was boring or exciting? Or do I come with reverence and awe, ready to worship the one who made me? And how often do we think about the fact that one day we will have to appear before the judgment seat of Christ? I, I, I tell you, I, I don't like the verse. I don't like the thought. I don't remind myself of it nearly enough. But one day we'll have to give an accounting. And Paul says it motivates him to go out and tell others about Jesus Christ. That's what the fear of the Lord meant to Paul. I fear that I'm going to have to give an accounting, and so I know I need to go preach the gospel. Do we even think about that? Back to Proverbs for just a second. In both Proverbs 3 and Proverbs 8, 13, uh, Solomon said essentially the same thing. He said the fear of the Lord is to hate or to shun evil. Translation, the fear of the Lord means to obey God. Here's how that breaks down. Fear at the very least means that I acknowledge that God is greater than I am and that what he says and wants is more important than what I want. So fear means this. I find out what he wants and I do it. Simple enough, isn't it? <clears throat> In fact, if you know what God wants and you don't do it, you've got a word for that. Stupid is one that comes to mind. Disobedient would fit. Proverbs uses the word evil. I think that probably fits too. My father was a strict disciplinarian. I understand the concept and this whole notion of fearing God because of the relationship I had with my father. I understood he had sway over me that what he wanted was more important than what I wanted. Sometimes those clashed. He told me very clearly, do not talk to your mother with disrespect. I learned the hard way when I chose to break a very clear rule that he gave me. Unfortunately, I sat just to his right at the dinner table. Dad sat at the head where Dad should sit. Mom sat at the other end. The four of us sat around the, uh, both, you know, between both of them, and I sat to Dad's immediate right, which you know, put me right in striking distance of this hand. So on at least two occasions, something came out of my mouth during the dinner table that was disrespectful of my mother, and before I knew what happened, my mouth was so sore uh, that I was dismissed from the dinner table. Do we really think that if we disobey God, if we don't care what he wants, if we don't do what he says, that there will be no consequences? Fear is not that God's up there as a big ogre, bopping us on the head with a stick every time we step out of line. That's not the scriptural view of God. But we err as well if we think there are no consequences when we don't do what he asks us to do. And we definitely know that there will be a day when we have to give an account, and at the very least, we should be looking forward to that. Let that motivate us to obey. Number two, flee immorality. He gives us a specific point of obedience that comes up in Proverbs, and I'm struck with how much time Solomon spends on this advice from a father to his son. Look at chapter 
You know, we could read three chapters of this, and he just goes on and on in the same topic. So you think, okay, we get it, Solomon. We're supposed to. Fl- I got it. Don't go near the adulteress. But just to give you a little flavor, Proverbs chapter six, verse twenty-three. I told you we were going to talk about sex this morning, so here we go. I wasn't just making that up. It's true. Proverbs chapter 6, verse 23. For these commands are a lamp, this teaching is a light, and the correction of discipline are the way to life. Keeping you from the immoral woman, from the smooth tongue of the wayward wife, do not lust in your heart after her beauty, or let her captivate you with her eyes. For the prostitute reduces you to a loaf of bread. Isn't that a great expression? And the adulteress preys upon your very life. Can a man scoop fire into his lap without his clothes being burned? Can a man walk on hot coals without his feet being scorched? So is he who sleeps with another man's wife. No one who touches her will go unpunished. Men do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his hunger when he's starving. Yet if he's caught, he must pay sevenfold, though it costs him all the wealth of his house. But a man who commits adultery lacks judgment. Whoever does so destroys himself. Three full chapters of this at the beginning of Proverbs. You think you thought it was important? You think God thought that was a message that ought to be delivered? I'm going to go out on a limb here. I think there are probably more references in Scripture that say, stay away from sexual immorality than there are that say, love your neighbor as yourself. Maybe even more than passages that say, love the Lord with all your soul and all your might and all your being. I'm not saying that it's a more important command, but by golly, if it's in there that often, uh, somebody must have thought it was important. Turn to the New Testament. Again, let's flip pages for a second, and then we'll, we'll drive it home. 1 Thessalonians. Lest you think this is a quaint advice from father to son, that applied somehow only during the kingdom period of Israel's existence in the Old Testament. Uh, let's see what Paul has to say. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. It is God's will that you should be holy, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that's holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen who do not know God, And that in this matter, no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men for all such sins. See, just like chucking that out there, you know, we know we have an eternal kingdom, so we know it doesn't happen then. So what what does he mean when he says we will be punished for those sins? It has to mean something temporal, something on this earthly plane. Turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3. This is a tough one. Uh, I, I don't think there's any... Uh, well, I'll speak for the men here. And I think all the women went on retreat. That's convenient while I'm speaking, don't you think? Uh, but, you know, Ephesians 5, 3. But among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Not even a hint. So, you know, lest, you're, lest you think this is just discussing adultery as, or prostitution, um, or maybe just the biblical definition of fornication, sex outside of marriage, that's our, our favorite old King James term, fornication, but, you know, so God at some point prohibits all sexual intercourse outside of marriage, 
But I think when he says even a hint of immorality, that probably includes all the other behavior you could get yourself into, that short of uh, intercourse itself. Perhaps the verse that's most like Proverbs, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. First Corinthians chapter six, verse thirteen. Well, I'm going to start in the middle of thirteen anyway. <clears throat> okay, catch up uh, anywhere in here. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By His power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and He will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ Himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a the prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All of the sins a man commits are outside his body. But he who sins sexually sins against his own body. It's a fascinating turn of phrase, isn't it? He who sins sexually sins against his own body. Very much like what Solomon was saying when he says, you know, the one who's, who um, sleeps with an adulteress does harm to, he destroys himself. I have a good Christian friend, grew up in a good church, got his degree from SPU, sure, back with the days when they still had to take lots of Bible credits. Pray with him regularly. Love the guy. Uh, he said to me recently, I just find it hard to believe that God really cares who has sex with who. Unfortunately, that is not an uncommon view in the Christian church today. When I got to speak to you about a year ago, I had some research from the Barna Institute. The Barna is a Christian group. They're great at weeding out appropriate or inappropriate responses from people that don't fit the people they want to poll, but they polled people that based on other questions, they determined were born-again believers, and more than 50% of born-again believers from the generation behind mine, the one coming up behind the baby boomers, more than 50%, in fact, nearly 60% saw nothing wrong with having sexual intercourse outside of marriage or cohabitating prior to marriage. That is the prevalent view of the next generation behind mine, your generation for many of you, in the Christian church today. Well, I'm here to tell you, that is not a scriptural view. It finds no support in the Word of God. To the contrary, throughout Scripture, God makes it very clear that He cares very deeply about who has sex with who. In fact, He cares so much about it, if you've ever read in the Old Testament the law, that anything that is sex outside of marriage with this person or that thing, the penalty was almost uniformly death. Does that suggest that perhaps God actually cares who sleeps with who? And again, lest you think that's a quaint Old Testament uh, understanding, well, then the passages that we just looked at ought to blow that idea out of the water. Because he says, all. Anyone who's involved in this will be punished. You have to have some understanding of these, uh, these passages, the Proverbs 6 and 1 Corinthians 6, that talk about the man who sins sexually destroys himself or the man who sins, uh, sexually sins against his own body. Uh, you know, there's some 
some understanding comes out of this passage, and it's this notion that the union created results in one flesh, and that, and that union is a highly spiritual, according to 1 Corinthians 6, relationship, one that's supposed to remind us that our body is God's. It's mystical. I don't fully understand it, but that, that's what I see in this passage, and I don't know how else to explain the fact that he says a man who, who sins sexually sins against his own body. He, he says, this is an important relationship. It's not just something you enter into willy-nilly. It involves the whole being. It's very spiritual. A couple years back, an author uh, writing against some of the modern notions in the, in the Christian church and some of our sort of sliding ideas of morality and what God wants, in writing against that, wrote one chapter on sex and, and addressed the situation. He did it way far, far more eloquently than I could. And so I'm going to read you briefly uh, his, his, what should have been his talk to his children, he says, but his thoughts coming out of these, these same passages. And, and I think this does a great job of explaining what 1 Corinthians 6 is trying to say. That joy that comes from physical intimacy is a reminder of the glory that is to be ours forever. It is an ecstatic celebration of the wondrous beauty of loyal, committed, permanent love in its full Trinitarian wholeness, physically, emotionally, spiritually. Thus, without any exaggeration, I say that it is a mystery, a sacrament, two image bearers, in an ecstasy of mutual love, symbolizing and reflecting and enjoying the holy beauty, the joyful symmetry, and loving perfections of God's pleasure in himself. That's another reason why sex is so powerful, because it's one of those darts of heaven, a pang of joy, if you will, that are meant to pierce us and remind us of where we are headed and where we belong. Unhappily, only few feel in its surge and rush and excitement the joy of a good and holy father who laughs and plays and dances the intimate delights in mutual satisfaction of this perfectly loving and supremely happy divine threesome who is one. Idolaters that we are, we tend to take the symbol and make it a god. That's where sex is no longer good. That's where life becomes death. Sex at its core is not about bodies and pleasure, but God. I didn't always recognize it to be so. It took me a while to understand that when sex goes bad, when the icon is mocked, and torn out of its holy frame, it is an unconscionable debasing. It's also a fraud, for it is a bodily promise of something the Spirit has not made and cannot keep. Sex outside of marriage is fraud. That nails it. God cares about sex because He made it, and He made it for the purpose of creating a unique and spiritual bond between two people. And to, to remove it from its intended purpose is to mock God and to hurt ourselves. Now you might be saying, well, that's one point of view. And it is. It just so happens that it's God's. And remember point one. Fearing God starts with an acknowledgement that he... And what he wants is more important than me and what I want. <clears throat> uh, a week or so ago, as I was laid up and in my drug-induced stupor <laughs> following surgery, I returned to some of my old favorite movies. 
caught up on some things that <clears throat> I've had on CD, uh, DVD, and never watched. Uh, one of the movies I always go back to is uh, the movie Patton. It's one of my favorite movies, and one of, the, one of my favorite parts is early on when he first gets the assignment in North Africa, and he replaces ineffective American command in North Africa, and he prepares almost immediately upon arriving in North Africa to go into battle against Germany's great tank commander, Erwin Rommel. And as depicted in the movie, the night before meeting Rommel in this great encounter between Rommel's forces and tanks and Patton's forces and tanks, he's reading a book as he goes to bed that night. And if you've ever seen the movie, you know what the book is. It's called Tank Warfare by Erwin Rommel. And the scene that follows is great. It's, it's not, if you know the history, it's not really this routing victory for the American forces, but the American forces that had just been decimated by the Germans a week earlier, suddenly uh, the American tanks withstand the onslaught and turn the German tide and sort of kick them back into their camp, so to speak. And uh, Patton, who's standing on the hill overseeing the battle, you know, can't help but cry out in, in glee, Rommel, I read your book, as the, as the German tanks retreat. Now, wouldn't it be great if there was a book written, How to Succeed in Life? Except it was true. You know, they're out there, and uh, it's written by earthly authors. And <clears throat> what if there was someone who really knew and wrote a book, do these things if you want your life to be the best it can be? Well, look, I'm not sure what your personal view of this book is. Uh, it's my Bible, by the way. But this book claims to be the inspired Word of God. So the God who made the universe, the God who made you, God who made life and all of its relationships, including the sexual ones. He wrote a book. And he wrote it for you and me. And it tells you and me just how to live, tells us how to love, how to relate to others, and how to walk with God. Is there any good reason that you would not read it? Not just today, but every day. More to the point, and in keeping with fearing the Lord, is there any reason that you would not do what it is that God says? That's my challenge to you this morning. If you fear God, will you find out what it is that He wants? And once you find out, wouldn't it be foolish to not do it? And if you believe this is what it claims to be, the Word of God. How can we not be in it? Finding out what it is that God wants and then following up by doing what He asks us to do. Not just in sexual relationships. That's just, that's just one point uh, today. But in all of life's endeavors. If this is God's formula for life, shouldn't we be in it? Thank you again for joining us this morning. I went just past noon and the floor didn't open, so Jim is safe. I'll let him know going forward. The call from wisdom, the cry of the book of Proverbs, it's not a call to be afraid of God. It's not a call to be judgmental in the area of sexual purity. But it is a call to stand against the directions that our culture is going. 
It is a call to figure out what God wants us to do and to do it His way. It is a call to trust Him when He writes to us and says, this way is best. Follow it. May you go with God's blessing this week. May you have the wisdom of Solomon and the strength of God's Holy Spirit as you go about your week this week. Amen.